I think I've had a lot of requests for panels and interviews. And I honestly, I'd shut most of them down because I wanted to get further along so that right. I can actually not just talk about the challenges, but some success. Right. And so I think going to Ecuador and being successful there is going to open the door up for me here from a PR perspective to talk about what do you do when it's too saturated in the US? What are your options or, or how to pivot? And so I think I can hit on topics that not a lot of people in the industry are going to be looking at because there's just not a lot of people looking at going from the US out. You know, most people are talking about outside in, you know, bringing products into the US from other countries. All branding is personal. And it's not about who you say you are. It's about who you are and how you say it. I'm Hirsch Rethmann, copywriter, comedian, and brand voice expert. I've helped hundreds of companies fine tune their messaging. And now I'm sitting down with some of the most ambitious and imaginative founders around who share their seven figure stories and their next figure goals. Let's hit the brand voice runway. I'm very excited about Brand Voice Runway today. We're going through an unprecedented heat wave. And I'm not just talking about the weather and climate change. I'm talking about the immense heat surrounding Larry Mercado and his many, many endeavors. Larry's a serial and social entrepreneur. I'll just throw out a few things. He's founded Bold Biologics. He's got Lysi. He's got Napkin. He's the CEO and founder of the DEI Fund. The DEI Equity Fund mission is to create generational equity in underserved communities by investing in diverse investment fund managers and early and growth stage businesses. And then, of course, we will talk about Mercom and his 18 years spent co-creating and guiding that company toward its sale. So, Larry, welcome to Brand Voice Runway. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to share some of my story. Hopefully some learning, some lessons learned. Well, I have it broken down into story, startups, lessons, and then the vision for the future. So let's start with the story and let's start with Mercom because that started even before you went to business school, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we started that. I was 24 years old when I started the company. My sister was 26 and we did it without investors with, I mean, we were able to secure a very, very small $20,000 line of credit that helped us get started that we later flipped to 50,000, but it was a very slow start. And we fortunately, both my sister and I had experience in the industry that we were launching. So right. We were- which was IT. Exactly. It was a tech company that specialized in selling to the federal government. So we knew how how to turn the levers of government in order to give us an edge on the sales cycle. So already there's one lesson, which is know your market, know where, know what you're getting yourself into. So we had actual customers telling us that we should start our business. They also understood the, the sort of federal government game where there's incentives for programs like the hub zone, which is historically historically underutilized business zone. But so you have to get you have to apply for that and be granted that status. Right. Um, you're, if you live in a hub zone and you work in a hub zone and certain number of employees are in a hub zone, then you can qualify. But in addition to that, 
we were woman-owned, minority-owned, so we went after the 8A certification, and we knew that these were things that would help us sell to the federal government. And our clients were telling us, when you're ready, you know, these are some of the things you need to do. And so we we felt like when we started, we were we we had the the playbook, so to speak. Yeah. How long did it take to become profitable? Profitable. Oh my goodness. Profit was at least two years. Two years. Uh, okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. We started. So our revenue, 2002. I moved down to South Carolina from Virginia, June of 2002, and so we we start operations. First six months, we did 70,000 in revenue. That was it. I think it was one or two orders. <laughs> yeah. So 70,000 total. 70,000 total in the six in, months. Right? In revenue. I think there was maybe probably less than $1,000 in profit in that order. Uh, the next year was 710,000. The majority was from, again, from one order, but we worked it most of the year. And that seemed to be enough, at least to, to keep us surviving. And then all of a sudden we get into this crazy path, the hockey stick, like all the entrepreneurs want to see. Uh-huh. Right. It goes from one, it goes to 1.4 million, 7.1 million, 13.2 million, 26.1 million. And then after that, I think in within five years, we were, we hit a hundred million. So it was wow. just meteoric rise in, in, in size. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. From our previous conversation that we had recently, the brand voice changes as you grow. So when you are finally, when you finally hit, you know, a million dollars, that's one thing. As you go up and start to, you know, become an eight figure, nine figure company, how did it change for you? How did your role change and how did your influence on the company change? Yeah. So in the beginning, I would say that I did every job under the sun, right? Because you have to kind of do it all. And that eventually shifted. I started peeling off my own layers as we hired other folks to do those jobs. So again, I, I handled everything from HR, security, IT, the general operations. I was sales support, customer service, everything you can think of. And that was the role, though. It was realizing what I wasn't good at. And the, one of my first key strategic hires, it was in 2007. So five years later, I hired our CFO. And I kind of, it was, a, we were button heads. I kind of had to push my sister because she didn't want to do it. And I said, we hired this guy or I'm out of here. <laughs> it was kind of like, right. I do it. I know my limitations and this is a major gap for our company. And I kind of forced the issue and... He was with us for 10 years and he was yeah. a great CFO. And you're the type of guy who wears a lot of hats, does yeah. what's needed. You're like a Swiss army knife type of, you know, exec and founder, maybe if that's accurate, um, yeah. you know, so now what, you know, 15 years, 18 years in what direction did things take with Mercom? Well, as we got more, as we grew and got into that position, it just felt like, for example, 2014, great example, we actually had the ability to come off hands off a little bit. And both my sister and I went and attended business school and went to executive programs. That's where I went to Stanford. She went to University of Virginia. And we both came back with a lot of great ideas. My case 
I, that showed me a lot of things that I had done in the past and how I could have done them better. So I really took that as an education on my sort of performance history and use that to not make the same mistakes because it was really neat to, to go through a case study and see it and see the actual case study is something that I experienced. Yeah. Well, were the, that, I mean, that's probably not super common. Did you see a lot of other people in, I mean, I know people who've gone back to business school after yeah. being in the workforce, but it's yeah. different from having really successful company at that level. Well, and, and funny story, when you go to a, a Stanford, their executive program, I actually, and this is after we had reached a hundred million, we were successful, we were profitable, we're giving back to the community, we're doing all kinds of stuff. And uh, the response from the admissions director was, well, your company's a little small. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that just set the stage for me. It checked my ego. And I realized that the people that I was going to be going to school with in this arena were, had extensive experience in business. Almost all of them had MBAs. They had the work background. They were managing, some of them didn't have my title, and yet they were managing five and 10,000 employees. Wow. So it's a totally different game. But the back to your, to your question, once the company got to that stage, now we could get away and fill holes in our personal development. And that was a big difference. So, so I, you I, feel- I to do uh, that. Go go ahead. Sorry, what was the last thing? No, I was just really excited to be able to do that and then yeah. take those lessons back to the company and make changes. So that was going to be my next question. So now you look at the company with fresh eyes. Yeah. What did you see? It was a successful company, very successful. So what did you see that you wanted um, to change? More, more work that we could do with the employees. At, one of the things that I love at Stanford, maybe other programs do this as well, but they're really breaking down human interaction, personality test, how to approach people, how to respond when you've been approached a certain way, and how to negotiate. You know, there was a whole class on negotiating. So all those things I could bring back and I started to change the way I approached people and the way I behaved with them for the Mm -hmm. better. Because I, because I, I started to realize that I needed to change my behavior in order to get better results. Even though right. we don't get good results, you know, you can always improve, right? Yeah. So. Well, that's a big part of it. So what happens after that with Mercom? Um, well, after that, we started to look at exit strategies. Again, some, some of the things that I learned over there. And it, we felt like it was time. And we started to shop, shop the company. And eventually, I ended up selling actually my shares to my sister. And she ended up selling subsequently a few years later all of all of her shares but for me it was i felt like it was a good time to get away you know because i you know that game i don't know if everyone enjoys it or federal government but it's very strict i had a ts yeah i was ready to not live in that world anymore and so i wanted to do some different types of businesses and that's exactly what i ended up doing i ended up getting into all kinds of different businesses none of them like mercom well, by the way, Larry, see what happens when you you had this government clearance. See what happened to Oppenheimer when he tried to get his clearance renewed. If it's like that every time, I it's, sure as hell don't want to go through it. Oh no, it's it, it's a complete pain. It's a pain in the butt. But 
I managed to get it first time through and and that's all that mattered. So before we move to Bold Biologics, tell me what happened when you went from 1.4 to 7.1 in terms of the company's image, self-image and the image you wanted to present to your prospective clients. What did anything change? Yeah, well, in government, you have a lot of places where you have to, when you're trying to win a contract, you have to put past performance and show that you have been able to do that kind of work before. And so it's always a challenge because you have to massage old work and almost like your own resume, maybe your your personal resume is not geared for a specific job, but you sort of change the wording so it looks like it fits a little better. We had to do a lot of the same stuff. And eventually, though, the name got around that we didn't have to sell ourselves anymore. The customer or the technical representative for the government or the contracting officer, they were doing the selling for us because they yeah. knew what kind of company we were. Yeah. 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 So, Your reputation preceded you at that absolutely. point, which is what, what I think we all want. Now, tell the audience a little bit about Bold Biologics sure. and then how you went about and why you went about launching that. So Bold Biologics is a CBD company, first and foremost, and it's primarily geared towards the health and wellness crowd, fitness freaks, you know, people that that really are looking at what they do with their bodies and what they put into their bodies. Right. Okay. The reason I started it is because as I learned when I sold my company, cannabis seemed to be a real area of interest and the you know, high potential, high growth potential, right? Because it's very new industry. So you get in early into a new industry. And if you're successful, you know, you have a really good chance to be uber successful, right? Because you're starting so early. And I chose the cannabis industry and being in South Carolina, you kind of go THC, no THC, or you're going ancillary. In other words, you're not touching the product. Maybe you're doing accounting support or legal support, right? For the industry. I knew I wanted to actually touch the product. So being in South Carolina, I had to go the CBD, the non-THC route. Right. And two things I did that helped me really get started. I had a lot of business experience because of Mercom and because of being on boards and helping entrepreneurs, but I'd never started a CBD company. I'd never started a, you know, a retail direct consumer company. So first thing I did was attend multiple MJ BizCons. And actually I attended other shows as well. But MJ BizCon is the largest cannabis industry trade show in the world. Right. I said, you know what the hell? I'm not going to go into this and not have that part completely solid, my supply chain. And I was able to do that by going to the show. I met all of my suppliers there and I was able to hire my lawyer hire three companies to develop the products, an accountant, everything from that show. But the next thing I did in order to fill some personal gaps for the business was I started to get and completed just last May my master's degree in medical cannabis science and therapeutics. Master science. From the School of Pharmacy over there. Yeah. University of Maryland. Right. Um, and yeah, I realized that I had the gaps in how do how can I explain on a cellular level how this is changing your body? And I really couldn't do that before. 
And if I right. did, it's probably filled with some mistakes and filled with hearsay from this person or that person that I met at MJ BizCon. The focus of our show is the brand voice and is, you know, what what you do with your brand once you have a, a voice to share. So it seems like going into Bold Biologics, you were pretty clear on the message, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But with cannabis, even with CBD, there's another hurdle to deal with when it comes to getting your message out and also being successful. So share a little about what your experience (laughs) was and what you've confronted, what you continue to confront, because this is a young company anyway, to begin with. And this, you hit the nail on the head with, with that. It's the obstacles, right, to, to right. get into the industry. And not just, again, from the THC or CBD perspective, very small things. When I went to start the company, I figured I'd be able to go ahead and get the website up, get the design up, do some mock-ups, do some pre-sales, and then I'd be good to go. Well, nope. I had to put the brakes on real quick <laughs> when yeah. I found out that in order to, to to open up an e-commerce site, the payment processors have their own requirements. Okay. And I think they're, they're based in federal requirements, but in order to do it, I had to have product ready to go as an, so I, I had to invest in all of my product before I could even sell a single one. So I couldn't, I couldn't do mock-ups. I couldn't do pre-sales. I had to fully develop the product have it, you know, in its container, have it labeled, get a COA done, the certificate of analysis to show that it's it's legit. And then after all that stuff, they would finally approve my website to sell. But it was so it just messed up my timing and cost because I was hoping that I could start generating revenue before I had to develop all the costs associated with it. Right. That was not the case. I had to front load all of those expenses because they just won't allow you to sell it. And it's and it's specifically because it's CBD. Right. And was, <clears throat> no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that that was an initial challenge, which I, I got through because I had the time and the resources. The one that still plagues me today, which I keep reading articles that that things have changed. But the big places where you can market your product are Google, Facebook, you know, a few other places, right? LinkedIn, even eBay, different platforms. All of those platforms have their own rules. And mind you, there's no federal requirement that they're responding to that makes them put these rules into place. They are choosing to to protect themselves, right? From liability, I guess. Yeah. But bottom line is, I cannot go advertise my product on Google. I cannot go advertise my product on Facebook. I have to do it sort of in a different way. I can advertise that I'm doing a giveaway for my company in order to attract new clients, but I can't actually advertise that I'm selling CBD on those platforms. And so it makes it incredibly difficult because every e-commerce store in the world if they're successful, they're they're going to be doing advertising on one of those platforms. Yeah. All of them. And and I can't touch them. Right. And that well, so, <laughs> so that brings an interesting 
question, and I we might have touched on this, you know, last time we spoke, but I don't know if we I don't know if we did. I know I wanted to cover it here on air. Is mm-hmm. you know when you're trying to sell an image and you're trying to proliferate proliferate an image, but you can't advertise in the places you want to advertise. Yeah. You know, is is growing your email list or growing your audience in ter- like what I would consider, pri- you know, privately, let's say, is that an option? Yeah, that and that is that's one of the only options, right? So you can beef up your SEO. You can really have a great looking website and you can go that route where you're spending the money instead of on advertising in growing an email list where then you can do direct mailing. Yeah. And that is the recipe for CBD companies. That's exactly it because those other channels are being blocked. Right. Mm-hmm. So, okay. That's what I suspected that, but let's, so now what problems, do, I mean, I know what, I, what the problem we just talked about that it solves. Mm-hmm. So how have you been doing that? How is it working? All of that. It's, it's still slow going, which is why I ended up doing a major pivot. I don't want to abandon the direct consumer US sales because it's still the biggest market in the world for it. Right. You know, I, I the limitations are now there's a bunch of competition. There's retail shops, you know, you got your CBD shop on the corner. Everybody has one of those. Right. Them, like, you know what I mean? And so I still I think because I had seen it in IT and some other industries, the the cannabis industry and the CBD segment specifically still needs to undergo mergers and acquisitions and failures and things like that. So every day that I survive is 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 a day that I think I'm getting ahead because I think there's companies failing every day in in the industry. So I right. so that's why I went on and did my pivot because I didn't see an inexpensive way to continue with this market, right? The direct consumer in the US. I realized that I have an opportunity with my network to take my product and export it to other countries where they may have less competition. It's easier access. Um, And in my case, I had connections down in Ecuador because of my company napkin. And so now I'm on the, on the final stage, I'm weeks away from sending product over to Ecuador. And we expect that that's going to be in the largest two pharmacy chains in the country. Uh, and if we're successful with this initial product launch, we we plan to expand products and also expand into the three neighboring countries. Yeah. So to me, it's business is a, a good business potential, but I had to realize that, okay, the it's saturated. There's still some changes that need to happen in the industry. Where can I, what can I do? Where can I go? Who can I talk to to get sales and make a difference? And and I realized I had to think outside of the box and go outside the U.S. Right. And you're already envisioning, you know, Peru, Chile, you You know, Argentina as the next stop. And it's obviously very exciting to think that the competition is not going to be as thick. It's, no. You're going to be it, like it, it one isn't. of a handful. Exactly. One of a handful. I'll be the only one from the United States. All of the other ones are Ecuadorian. 
So in, in some Latin American countries, there is some sort of respect for U.S.-based products. I think they, they, uh, they understand the federal requirements in the U.S. are a mm -hmm. lot of times more stringent. So quality control typically might be better. So the belief that I might get a better product if it's made in the U.S. versus somewhere else is strong in, in some Latin American countries. Right. So I think that, that's our edge. That's a major edge down there. So we, rather than pull away from that, which is in all of my products, you know, a little logo made in the USA, we wanted to really highlight that even more so. Right. Ecuador. That's great. And speaking of the USA, so in terms of your US sales at that point, what is your plan there? On the US side? Well, yeah. So if Ecuador is successful, I can actually use that to get into instead of going direct to consumer. Now I can reverse engineer it and come back and, and potentially start the wholesale, wholesale over here. Ah, OK. Because I'll have the past performance and experience from having it done down there. Now I can go to wholesale and, and all of them work together because I think as your social media presence grows with all those different things, they're going to customers are going to see that well they're going to see that you're growing right you're adding, you're adding product lines you're now you're selling wholesale you have all these different distinctions so you're a more of a comfortable company people are going to be a little more comfortable buying from you and not thinking you're going to get their they're going to get their credit card stolen that it's a scam that it's you know not a real product things like that well this speaks also to brand voice because, you know, now your image is organically growing, evolving right. in a way that's really beneficial to you. What are, you know, there are all kinds of, of issues with advertising, as we've discussed. What about PR and what about PR in the U.S. once this Ecuador move is paying off? Yeah, so that's a great point. So I think I've had a lot of requests for panels and interviews, and I've and I honestly I'd shut most of them down because I wanted to get further along so that right. I can actually not just talk about the challenges, but some success. Right. And so I think going to Ecuador and being successful there is gonna open the door up for me here from a PR perspective to talk about what do you do when it's too saturated in the US, what are your options or, or how, how to pivot? And so I, I think I can hit on topics that not a lot of people in the industry are going to be looking at because there's just not a lot of people looking at going from the US out. You know, most people are, are talking about outside in, you know, bringing products into the US from other countries. But right. I, I think I'll have a unique story that will allow me to get airtime and allow me to get on panels and, you know, pump up the, the, the vision, the company, social media, everything, even more so. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's exciting. You mentioned Napkin. Let's take a minute or two to share what Napkin is, because that's sure. an interesting company. Yeah, Napkin is a digital marketing company, global offices in Canada, US, Ecuador, India, and Australia. And I think that's all, that's everybody. Uh, yeah. Oh, and it's a M&A roll-up. 
strategy. And for anyone that doesn't understand that, it's if you know what KKR publicly traded, they're a private equity company. They all they do is own a bunch of other companies. They own a bunch of brands. Right. Right. And so that's what Napkin is. It's a conglomerate of either digital marketing companies or brands that they feel that they can pull under the umbrella and make even more successful and profitable. Right. And so for me, it was interesting because I've had a rev share deal with them from the beginning. So I paid an initial fee and they have been doing all of my marketing for the last three plus years based on a percentage of revenue that they would collect. Mm-hmm. So it's neat because if they're successful, they get more money. If, if I'm successful, they get more money. Yeah. So it's, it's a win-win or, or a lose-lose. <laughs> we do have some serious capabilities. Like one of our sub-companies called LaVector out of Ecuador is an award-winning 3D pre and post, 2D, 3D pre and post production company. Oh, I wow. mean, they're, they're pitching a series to Discovery right now, a cartoon series. So they have that, you know, they have some serious chops when it comes to film. Yeah. Um, even though we're not one of the big ones, we can compete on some things. Obviously, we got a partner with other companies to bring the, the whole picture. But that was the whole strategy, really, with the mergers and acquisitions, as we call it the wheel, right? So you have mm-hmm. your, you have email marketing, you have subscriptions, you have SEO, you have website, you have CRM, ERP, all these different components that different companies might specialize in. We knew where our specialties were, and we knew where we were filling the gap with uh, either sister companies or associated companies. The more we acquire that wheel, the more we can do ourselves. Yeah, that's and, awesome. Yeah, that's been the goal. Fill the wheel out. And then once we're able to do that, we would then launch the platform for revenue share exchange. Right. Um, and, and that also, you know, brings us now to the vision part of all of this. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about Clendo and the lessons that you learned from looking at your aunt's yeah, company, yeah. which was phenomenally successful right? Possibly, you know, one time the largest lab in the Caribbean. But what was the lesson there? The the lesson there was how to protect yourself and not get overextended. You know, really understanding, I would say, P&L and balance sheet from a company perspective, but also the impact on you personally, your own tax liability, things like that. What, what happened with my aunt's business is she had an opportunity to sell when it had a pretty high valuation and it was going to sell to what are the companies that take your blood work? There's two major companies. I can't think of them. West. West Diagnostics, Lab, LabCorp. Okay. Yeah. She had an offer from LabCorp, I think. And this is back in the eighties, nineties. A long story short, she didn't sell. They continued to operate. She retired and had, you know, some of the children take over. And that we were thinking of doing the same thing with Mercom. And I just realized if it's not, if you haven't been working together in unison for a while, say father, son, or mother, son, father, daughter, whatever the combination of family dynamic it is, it's really risky to just turn it over. And what happened in their case is ultimately the company went under 
and there was bankruptcies and it was just a it was a sad situation and it could have been easily averted and avoided yeah and so for, for me the lesson was you know i want to make sure that with any of my companies i don't ever overextend myself personally yeah you know what I, mean? I, I don't over invest it, it i fortunately i've sat on this foundation board for several years and i i chair the investment committee and i've learned a lot of these lessons about how to make your portfolio diverse and how to maintain it with that diversity. And so I sort of had a limit on how much I was willing to invest in angel private equity, venture capital, and make sure I had some in cash, make sure I have some in other real assets, tangible assets, et cetera. So that was a big lesson from Clendo is not so much how when to sell or anything like that, but just just to realize the succession planning, right? You really have to think about that if you're thinking about exiting and leaving it to your children or family or, or whatever the case may be. And how and what do you see as you know? We we started the conversation talking about profitability and the you know the couple of years at least that it takes to get there. What's the arc in your view? I don't know if it's the perfect arc, the traditional arc, if there is one, what's the arc for a company to grow, hit its stride, and then for the founder to start thinking about succession? You know, when they start the company, they may not have their family even yet. You know, they may have relatives, but oh, it's true. You know, but they may not have kids yet, or you know, or Succession doesn't always isn't always family. So what do you think? What's the arc? Hmm. You know, I think it's it's going to be different for each person based on their family. And, you know, if you love what you're doing, you know, you may never want to sell and never have a succession plan and, and you pass away and the whole thing goes under and you you know, you never <laughs> cared about it that way. So what? Yeah. <laughs> <Great> to be <laughs> so <laughs> so tired, but yeah, the reality is that everyone's different. I knew in the case of Mercom, and I think my aunt in the case of Clendo, that I was getting tired of doing that kind of work. So I was starting to look for my exit. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, if you, as an entrepreneur, if you get to a point where you're getting bored with your business, it's providing for you and you don't have to babysit it. You actually have good, you hired good people. And it's kind of just running on its own. You built the engine, let it run, so to speak. If if you're getting to that point, yeah, then you probably need to start looking for an exit because to me, it sounds like that's something you don't want to do anymore. Unless you yeah. feel like, hey, this is a cash cow and I'm just, I can sit back and, you know, on the lazy boy or on the beach and let it just run and keep pumping money. And that I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. It yeah. just depends on on your ambition. You know, I you started the show talking about how I'm always have my hands in a bunch of different things. Yeah, I'm, I'm never really bored. I'm always have <laughs> different right. projects. So that's never going to happen to me. I've always got the next project lined up if I wanted to exit a company over here. Yeah. So, so it's, again, to answer your question, it's very hard to say. It's very individual. I think. Yeah. It, the the important thing is to probably if if we were to take a global takeaway or what I take away from a lot of what you've been saying Larry is you know keep your eye the uh keep some perspective on every step of what you're doing you know 
take a step back for every for every step you take forward, take a step away for a minute just to look at it, you yeah, know, exactly. and Very and much. get your perspective, maintain your perspective so that it isn't always because there are those moments where everything's so hard charging, you have the vision. You don't want to stop to look up because you want to keep going. You want to get there, but there's going to be moments along the trajectory that you're going to need to take stock, make sure you're not overextending yourself, make sure that you, if you, if you have taken outside money, you know, make sure you're very aware of all of the lenders, you know, particulars and the fine print and everything that's going on, you know. Make sure that you have hired the right people to do what you don't do well or don't like to do or someone else can do better. And then keep an eye on where this thing that you've built is going. If you care about it, you know, keep an eye on, of, on where it's going so that you you can be happy and so that the people who the company serves and takes care of both internally and externally can be happy. Those seem to be some things that I've gleaned from you talking to you today. I agree. You have to sort of stop and smell the roses, right? Yeah. And, and then look at the landscape around you. you. You've been moving and you've been looking down at the ground the whole time. Right. You need to stop and where am I at? How do I adjust? How do I pivot? What do I need to do next? Well, you know what's going to happen if you're running with your face down at the grass the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you know what eventually is coming if you don't look up. What would you like to do? Are you resolved to do looking at the landscape over the next 12 months? Well, I believe we're going to be successful in the Ecuador launch. So this is related to bold biologics. Yeah. And it's getting ahead of the game. I think we've done a very good job of putting our our stamp, our persona, this be bold, which is our campaign right be bold campaign for the company i think what's coming next is going to be developing new product and actually potentially a whole new product line we've been asked a lot about pet products and we've been asked and we're talking about female products because there's there's a big gap a dearth of or lack thereof, lack of products in that space. So I think it's really, for me, it's expanding the product line. Yeah. But obviously that has to wait on, I need to see some success before I do that. Yeah. But that's great because yeah. that is the vision. And then you know. and from a napkin perspective, it's continuing to see where, it, where because we're a, a M&A roll-up, there's always companies out there that we need to be on the lookout for and hunt because they're going to give us an edge either strategically or financially or both. Right. And so I'm constantly looking at those. And, and as a matter of fact, we're looking, Napkin is, I don't know, has a $23 million run rate right now as far as anticipated 12 month revenue. Right. We're looking at buying a company that's valued over a hundred million. Right. Five times our size. Right. <laughs> but, um, and that's actually, I guess, another lesson that I've learned is don't think the answer is no, just because you don't have the money. Yeah. But I will tell you one thing I've learned is that you can work deals with other people and other companies because they may like the idea and they may want to put the money in for you. For a right. Piece. Right. Uh, and it's don't, don't necessarily 
buy down, buy, buy up, you know, that may be the answer there. It isn't always looking behind you or below you. Right. You know, it's similar to like a leverage buyout, something like that. Before you put it on paper, you don't believe it's possible. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get into the details and you're able to get it done. If you've enjoyed this episode of Brand Voice Runway, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast. The positive reinforcement keeps us going. Who am I kidding? Founders like us keep going regardless. Thanks so much for listening and make tomorrow greater than today.